Stop at the crossroads. Look around. Ask for the old emphasis on this word, godly way. You can be seated this morning. We're in a series called Crossroads. And uh, we're talking about moments of decision. When you come to a crossroads, you have a decision to make. I went to Elko camp meeting the other night, and uh, which if you've never been to Elko, you're really missing out. It's a phenomenal facility that you need to at least go see once in your life. But when, you, when you're going to Elko as you come through and you're about to get to, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of the place. There's a little town out there outside of Tams, and I can't think of it. Anyways, you come to a spot where there is a T in the road. So you can't go forward. You have to choose if you're going right or left. That is what crossroads is. Which way am I going to go? Am I going to make this decision or am I going to make that decision? And it's, it's a really important time because if you make the wrong decision, how many of you know one wrong turn quickly turns into two and two quickly turns into three? Have I ever had anybody get lost on the interstate like I have by making one wrong turn that turned into two wrong turns that turned into taking the wrong exit here that turned into, uh, it happens. Crossroads are important times in our lives. And so we're talking about those seasons of decision or seasons of transition. And Jeremiah in this verse gives us a kind of a, a outline or a template or a plan for us to go off. He says, when you come to the crossroads, you need to do these three things. Number one, stop at the crossroads. Slow down. You know, it would make a lot of difference in a lot of our lives in decision making. And, and I say a lot of us, I really could just point all of my fingers at me on this and say it would make a lot of difference in my life in decision making if I would just slow down a little bit. I ever, do I have anybody else that's an impulse buyer? Anybody else that is, that is susceptible to impulse buying? I'm someone that as soon as I see something and think I want it, I don't like wait and, and read reviews and like I just I want to go buy it right now like I need it I thought of it I need it today I'm an impulse I don't do very good with the whole patient thing so he says when you come to a moment of decision to a season of crossroads stop examine look at the crossroads stop and look examine evaluate your options and then this is really the most vital part of the the template that he gives us is he says and ask for the godly way the most important thing that you can do when you come to a season of decision is slow down, evaluate, and ask God. What direction, what decision would you have me to make? Now that seems like a really simple pattern of things to do, doesn't it? Like that seems like something would be so easy, like three things. Stop, evaluate, ask. That's easy. Try it. Next time you come to a decision, see how easy it is to stop, evaluate, and ask. Because something that is so simple in nature is so complex in practicality. Because we don't like to slow down. We, and we certainly don't like to ask which way we should go. Right? I'm a grown man. I make my own decisions. You're not going to tell me which way I can and can't go. You're not going to tell me what I can and can't do. We all like to make our own decisions. But God said stop at the crossroads, evaluate, and ask for the old godly way. And so last week, we began talking about the crossroads of commitment. We talked about the nation of Israel when they came to the Red Sea, that they had a moment that they had to decide, am I going to continue walking into the freedom and the liberty and the destiny that God has for me? Or am I going to turn around and go back to the same old life that I left behind? Am I going to go back to the, to the, to the, the enemy that's chasing after me? 
And their decision, their, their decision, their crossroads of commitment wasn't one in that they had to do anything real big or real extravagant. But their crossroads of commitment was that they had to decide, I'm going to just stand still and let God work. One of the greatest commitments that you'll ever make is the commitment to take your hands off of everything and let God work it out for you. It's one of the hardest commitments that you'll ever make. Because we're all fixers. We all like to get our hands into it. But you know what I found out? And this is true both spiritually and like uh, physically. If I get my hand into it, it's just going to break it worse. Right? If I decide I'm going to fix it, it's not going to help out. It's going to make things worse. And so they had the crossroads of commitment. And what they could not have known and what they did not know at the moment is that just on the other side of their commitment was a miraculous manifestation of the power of God. And you will never know what you're forfeiting if you don't walk and take the right turn at the crossroads of commitment. And so today we're continuing with the same concept of crossroads. And we're talking about the crossroads of conformity. The crossroads of conformity. Now, conformity means to come into the likeness and the image and, and to become like and because I am someone that leads from vulnerability, usually when you forget something, you know, you don't tell the whole crowd. But I've been doing, just putting a, a, a object for us to look at and kind of be our mental picture of what we're talking about. Last week it was a ring box for the crossroads of commitment. Today I was supposed to bring Play-Doh, because we're talking about conformity, but I forgot the Play-Doh. And so just imagine that there's a can of Play-Doh right here on this table, and that'll just really get you on the same wavelength as me, because that Play-Doh was really the, the make-or-break moment of my message, is whether there was Play-Doh on that table or not. And since there's not, we're just going to muddle through this and hope it turns out all right. So we're talking about conformity, being brought into the likeness or the shape or the image of something. I, my cousins, uh, my Uncle Brian, you all know my Uncle Brian, and he, he, they attended here for a while while they were in a season of transition, but... When I was growing up, when I was born, they had always been in Kansas City. For the longest time, they were pastors in Kansas City. And so my cousins, of course, had the, the mannerisms and the accents and all that of someone that lives in Kansas City, which is just kind of a Midwest city. And they moved to Paducah and began pastoring at Full Gospel Tabernacle. Now, the crazy thing was that Brianna, who is my oldest cousin, or, or she's the oldest of his kids. She's about, I don't know, five, six months younger than me. And uh, she moved here, and we were really tight friends. We hung out a lot. And I got to noticing over the course of months as they lived in Paducah that her personality didn't really change, and, and what she wore didn't really change, and even the things she said didn't really change, but the way she said them began to change. Because as they lived in Paducah, she stopped talking like a city slicker from Kansas, city, slicker from Kansas city and started saying things like, y'all and and her voice started kind of turning and twanging a little bit to it you know what I mean I mean it's got that Paducah that western Kentucky twang to it and I remember one day I was talking to her and I'm like since when do you sound like that I mean you're saying the same stuff you're looking the same but but you sound so different because what she was around began to influence what she sounded like so fast forward a few years, they moved to New York, and I was talking to her on the phone one day, and I got to noticing that it wasn't as much she sounded like this anymore, but now she started to talk a little bit like she was from New York, you know, like, you know, like it's Boston where they park their car. And, but it, her accent changed so dramatically. No matter where they moved, she began to take on 
the mannerisms and the accent and the sound of what she was around. Now, there's a whole other sermon in this about why it's important that you control the culture that you're a part of. Because who you hang around is who you're going to reflect. What you, what you expose yourself to is ultimately what you are going to become. And so that's why it's important that you have godly relationships. That's why we're pushing this whole move towards small groups and all this stuff is because we want you to get into a community or into a group of people that they are positively influencing you to bring on the characteristics that God has for you, that we're not just getting together on Sundays and then living our lives separately apart from each other throughout the week. We want to be a group that gets together and we positively encourage each other to grow in Christ. And to grow in our walk with God. And so that, that's one aspect of conformity. But what I want to talk to you about today is remember I've said that this series is applicable both to us personally and corporately. And there are times that we are going to try to conform into something that God never intended for us to be. We're going to, be, to try to become something just because we think it's what works. Or we think it's what is beneficial. And we come to a crossroads of conformity. And I'll give you a spoiler alert by letting you know this. That basically the premise of this whole message is this. Either you are going to conform, ask God to conform to your will. Or you're going to conform to his. That's the only two options that we have as Christ followers. We are either going to be people that say, God, this is the way I want it. I want you to get in line with what I want. Or we're going to say, God, what would you have for me? And so we're going to look at the nation of Israel a little farther down their history. We find them facing a crossroads of conformity in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse number 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Like everybody else. The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all they say to you. They want to be like everybody rejected you. but They've rejected me. They want to be like everybody else. And in doing so, they're rejecting me. The crossroads of conformity. You know, the nation of Israel was unlike any other nation in history. I mean, think about their story. What they came from. I mean, from the very beginning, their existence is impossible. God shows up to an old dude named Abram with a barren wife named Sarai. And he says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. None of that makes any sense. Like, if you're going to birth a great nation, God, you don't go to the old guy with a barren wife. You go to someone young that still has a lot of childbearing capabilities. But from the very beginning, God was defying the odds with the existence of the nation of Israel. And so he gives an old woman who's never had a child, a son named Isaac. And Isaac has sons named, uh, named Jacob and Esau. 
and Jacob is the one that God uses, even though Jacob is the one that makes all the mistakes. I mean, you can just read this history and find that time after time after time after time, God is doing impossible things to bring this nation into existence. Fast forward to where we find them in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They've seen victory after victory. They've seen providence after providence. God has proven himself so faithful and so great and so awesome in their situation. But what's amazing to me is that after all that God has done for them, after the extravagant means and manifestations of his presence and grace in their lives, they have become dissatisfied with their existence. This is something I, I want you, if, if you got one of your message handouts today, this is the first line on your notes. It says that once something has become familiar, it will soon be taken for granted. Once something becomes familiar, it'll soon be taken for granted. I know this personally from my life in a very spiritual experience. Whenever my dad was, uh, whenever I was younger, my dad's grandma lived in Beaumont, Texas. We went down there one summer to spend a week at her house, and there's just nothing funner when you're a kid than spending a week at your grandmother's house in rural East Texas with no television, no nothing. You just... We played dominoes. That was, that was our week. It was, it was a wonderful week of vacation. But I digress. That has nothing to do with the story. One thing that did happen when we went to, South, or to East Texas was that my dad introduced me to something that I believe if the Holy Spirit ever manifested itself in physical form, it would manifest itself as a gallon of Bluebell ice cream. Because that's what I was introduced to in Texas. I never had anything like it. Homemade vanilla Bluebell ice cream. And I remember I took that first bite, and it was like, it was like otherworldly. I mean, it, it, I transcended time and space and went into this place of utopia that I can't even quite, quite explain to you. But from then on, as boring as that week was, when I found out Dad was going to Texas, I'm like, count me in. You know why I wanted to go? Because of the Bluebell ice cream. I wanted some of that ice cream. And it was amazing that it was so extravagant and it was so awesome and it was, it was like this, this really special occasion. And then one day a few years ago, I was reading online and it said that Bluebell was expanding from just being a regionally distributed brand to being a nationally distributed brand. And of course, I shouted in my living room when I read that. But now I can go to Walmart in Paducah, Kentucky walk into the freezer section, open it up and grab me a half gallon of Bluebell ice cream, go back to my house, melt some peanut butter, pour it on top of it, and eat it and have a wonderful experience. And I often do that very thing. Try to make it as much of a nightly habit as I possibly can. You know what's crazy though is that no longer is Bluebell that special to me. It's, it's just a part of my night, right? Like it's just something that, that I do just something that I enjoy. It's not something that I say, yeah, I want to get in the car and drive 12 hours to go get it because it's familiar now. When something is familiar, it's easily taken for granted. And so a lot of us, we've experienced the presence of God just like the nation of Israel. They had been so blessed and so, and, and so filled by his presence that there came a time that no longer were they saying, oh, thank you, God, that you're with us. Oh, thank you, God, that you're fighting for us. Thank you, God, that you provided for us. Now they're saying, you know what, God, we just really don't like the leaders you've given us. 
See, this is the same nation that just a few years ago, if you, if you backtrack the history, was making bricks without straw in the nation of Egypt with no freedom. Now they have land. Now they have a life. Now they have society. They have money. They have a military. And they're complaining about the fact that they have two leaders that aren't doing exactly what they want them to do. Because they become familiar. And because they're familiar, they've taken it for granted. The amazing aspect of this story to me is the fact that the very difference, the thing that they're wanting to forfeit is the reason that they exist in the first place. Look at their request. Give us a king like all the other nations. What are they really saying? They're saying, God, would you please change it to where we are not so peculiar and we're not so different? When it was their peculiarity and their difference that actually had sustained them up to this point. It's a crossroads of conformity. If we're not careful, we allow our focus to become jaded as well, just like they did. Because how many of y'all know problems are a whole lot easier to think about than blessings are? Problems are a whole lot easier to dwell on than blessings are. Let me give you an example. We have created a culture as such that if everything's going good, then I can't really tell you about everything going good because it seems like I'm bragging. But if I got a lot of stuff going on in my life, like I got a lot of problems, you'll talk to me for three hours about my problems. But if we really talk about the blessings, then there's a problem with that because we're boasting. What kind of culture is that? It's so much easier to highlight and focus and magnify our problems than it is the blessings that God has given us. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel was doing. I mean, I understand that things weren't perfect. And I understand that things weren't exactly what they want, wanted to be. But they had taken their eyes off all their blessings and started to highlight their problems. What does that look like in our context? Well, it sounds a lot like this. And we've all heard some variation of this. And it's not just this church. It's every church. It's every believer, it seems like, that, that we, we get together. And rather than talking about, man, praise God that he's given us a building. Praise God that we've got a good ministry team. Praise God that we've got nice pews. What do we do? We get together and we say, well, I don't like the new songs. Well, I don't like the old songs. Well, I don't like modern churches. Well, I don't like traditional churches. Well, I don't. And we argue, we, we talk about all this stuff, don't we? It's all right. I'm, I'm being real. You can be real too. You can nod your head and say, amen, that's right. We talk about that stuff. And, and we take our eyes off of all the blessings, off of all the good things, and we start talking about all the issues. And we start complaining about all the issues. It's exactly what the nation of Israel did. Over the course of time, we allow our dissatisfaction with our current situation drive us to the place of wanting to conform to what we think we want. What we think we want. This brings us to a crossroads at which we have to decide, are we going to try to be like everyone else? Are we going to continue allowing God to give us a distinct identity? And this is difficult because some of us have lived our entire Christian experience from a place of trying to conform. And I want you to, I want you to listen to me here because I, I, think that, I think the Holy Spirit showed me this in that a lot of our uh, traditional Pentecostal and even, even other denominations, our traditional churches, the preacher preached from a place of trying to get everyone to conform 
to what their idea of sanctification was. And so we preached about down the line, don't wear this, don't do that, don't go here, don't preach about all these things. And so all of us that are good Christians, we submitted ourselves to the man of God and we said, all right, I'm going to conform to that. And we conform to someone else's version of sanctification. We conform to someone else's version of what holiness is. And as a result, here's what I've seen, and this is why I'm so adamant about making sure that we let the Holy Spirit do the convicting and the changing and the teaching, is because I have watched my entire generation of friends, I mean, very, very small percentage of people that I grew up and went to camp with that are still in church today. Because they conformed and they became and they wore and they didn't go and they did everything that they were told but they never got an experience with God for themselves. And a lot of us have lived in this place of conformity to where we look the part, we sound the part, we come and we know the words to say and we know when we're supposed to live our hands. But if we could actually see with spiritual lenses, we would understand that a lot of us, even in this room today, are spiritually empty. We have nothing inside because we have conformed to what we thought we were supposed to be. This is a double-sided coin because this can go one of two ways. This can talk about being ultra-conservative. This can talk about being ultra-liberal. This can talk about being traditional. This can talk about being modern. It's conforming to something just because you think that's what you're supposed to be rather than allowing God to shape you into what He wants you to be. I understand this is, this is not a, a happy-go-lucky sermon, to be honest with you, as I've gotten into it today. God's taken me off my notes a little bit and it's gotten a little more real than I thought it was going to get. So we're all in this boat together today. That there are things that we face, moments that we come to that we have to decide, am I going to let God do what He's trying to do in this season of my life? I'm not going to get through all my notes today, but we're going to start. The first thing I want us to see today is that their complaint, the nation of Israel's complaint was legitimate. I don't want to mislead you into thinking that just because I believe Israel was wrong in requesting a king, that I believe they were wrong in being dissatisfied with the current state of affairs. Joel and Abijah were bad news. They were taking bribes as judges, as, as men that were supposed to be men of God. They were perverting justice, the scripture said. They were, they were doing a lot of bad stuff. So I'm not saying they were wrong for complaining about that. I just think they were wrong in their approach. See, look at who came to Samuel, it says, the elders of Israel came to Samuel when he was old. Now, I understand that old elders can mean the leaders, but by implication, we kind of understand and infer that they were about the same age or close to the same age of Samuel. So picture with me what's happening. This is a group of old people, and I don't mean any offense by that term. That's just what the Scripture said. This is a group of old people getting together and saying, Samuel... We do not like the way things are going because your sons are not like you. Now, they take that situation and they go to the place of saying, we want a king rather than judges. We want someone else to come in. We want to change everything about what we have because we're not satisfied with the way things are. That's one approach to it. But what if they had chosen rather to work with Joel and Abijah. What if rather than abandoning them, 
they decided we're going to try to help them. See, that's the thing. I don't discredit anyone for saying that this generation has some issues because, y'all, it's, it's true. My generation is messed up. I mean, there's never been a generation that I know of before that, is, that has had the, the issue of gender identity. I mean, how, how confused can a, can a society be that we don't even know biologically who we are, what we are? I mean, I understand there's some issues. I understand that there's all kinds of promiscuity, and I understand that there's depression, and there's, and, and, and there's all kinds of wrongs. and things. I, I understand all that. I get all that. But the problem is that sometimes the church has the, the mindset, just like the elders of Israel did, that they say, you know what, we don't like what this generation is, and so we're going to just abandon them. Because that's what they did to Joel and Abijah. They said, we don't like what they're doing, we don't like how they're living, and so rather than trying to work with them, we want to just leave them alone. Can I tell you, it is not the calling of the church to forget a generation. We are not called to condemn this generation. We are called to be the hope of this generation. We are called to be the source and solution for their problems. Because everything they're facing, Jesus is the answer for. Their complaint was legitimate, but their approach was all wrong. It's okay for us to say, yeah, there's an issue with this generation, but it's not okay for us to say there's an issue to such a degree that we don't even want to try to reach them. It's okay for us to say that, yeah, there's some messed up lives out there. It's not okay for us to say that they're too messed up for me to even give them the time of day. We must be a church that does not just focus on those that are worthy of the message. Because I wasn't worthy of the message. And I love you, but you weren't worthy of the message either. If we all had what we deserve, we'd be in hell. But the grace of God gave us an opportunity to hear about a Savior that went to the cross and died for our sins and took our punishment. And so now we have not the responsibility, but the privilege of going to those that are broken and confused and bound and saying to them, you don't have to stay in the reality that you're tired of. You don't have to live in confusion. You don't have to live in shame and regret, but you can be forgiven. You can be made new. You can have an identity given to you by a God that loves you extravagantly to the degree that He gave His only Son for you. That's our calling as the church. Don't just complain about this generation. Reach this generation. Don't just talk about how messed up they are. Be the solution to what they are. Because we have the message that can change their lives. So their complaint was legitimate. We have a legitimate complaint. I'm going to stop right there. We'll continue on next week. I understand that when we come to the crossroads of conformity, it's, 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 there's no way that's comfortable. Because you can't just stay the same way and be who God has called you to be, right? I mean, y'all would think I was weird if you said, but Tyler, we want to take you out to, out to dinner. And I said, all right, let's go. We got there, and, and let's say we go to Longhorn Steakhouse. And you say, you want to order you a steak? And I say, no, nah, I'm all right. I, I don't really. I, I actually brought, I got some carrot baby food my wife brought for me. I'm going to pop it open, and I'm going 
I'm just going to eat this. I'm just going to down some carrot baby food. You'd think I was weird if I did that. Because as a 27-year-old man, I'm not supposed to be eating baby food anymore. Now, there was a time whenever I ate the baby food and my mom and dad just, oh, that's so good, son. You're eating that and you're swallowing that and that's so good. There was a time that that was good because I had progressed from milk to baby food. But now because I'm a grown man, I'm not supposed to be eating baby food no more. What was good for a season is not good for a lifetime. That's, that right there is good preaching. What was good for a season is not good for a lifetime. Look at the children of Israel out in the wilderness. There's a, a, a onslaught of snakes that are biting and killing people. God speaks to Moses. He said, lift up a serpent on a stick. This is supposed to be a picture of Christ. When they look at that serpent, they'll be healed. It's a great season. God healed a lot of people through that story, through that manifestation. The power of God manifested in a snake being lifted up on a stick. But you look at what happened later on. They took that, sti- that snake and they began to worship that snake. And what was their form and their, and their means of deliverance in one season was actually their barrier and their bondage in another. And so... As I preach about the concept of modernization and I preach about the concept of doing new things and moving forward, I understand that all of that is uncomfortable. I understand that. But we cannot be bound by what we used to be to the degree that we don't let God make us into what He wants us to be for this generation. We hold true to what Scripture says. We hold true to the manifestation of God's Spirit. We hold true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we will do everything in our power to facilitate this generation encountering the love of Jesus Christ because they desperately need it. And here's the thing. As we facilitate that and as you allow God to shape us and mold us into being a church that reaches that generation, it's not just going to be the lost and the dying ones that are affected by it. It's going to be your kids and your grandkids and their kids, that as we become a church that is reaching the next generation, you get blessed by that. Why am I passionate about reaching the next generation? Because I got two little boys that I want to fall in love with Jesus just like I did. I got two little boys that I don't want to have to walk through some of the confusing and and, and things that I faced. I don't want them to walk through that. I want them to know that there is a God that loves them and has a plan for them. Amen. It's a crossroads of conformity.